Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. John 18, going to begin reading with verse number 1. John 18, and going to begin with verse number 1. The Bible states these words, when Jesus had spoken these words, remember he just finished praying, he just finished this long dialogue, discourse, whatever you want to call it, uh, to his disciples. He went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled which he spake, of them which thou gavest me I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having his sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into thy sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Tonight, I really kind of struggled really what to call this so I just called this tonight tipping points because I think there's a few of them throughout the scripture just tipping points here amen this evening the Lord would help us for the next little while amen we'll, we'll go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help father we need you Lord Jesus this evening God you able to help us Lord through your word tonight God help it God to find a place of security in our lives I know God that you're able to speak and minister God I pray oh Lord help us to hear Help us, Lord, to understand. I pray, oh God, tonight, Jesus, God, come alive to us, Lord, from the pages of Scripture. God will not fail to thank you, Lord, and appreciate you, God, for what you do, Lord, in the lovely name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen, amen. The church say amen. amen. God bless you in Jesus' name. Sorry we wasn't here last Wednesday. Oh, the bad storm that didn't come. But that's the way things go. As Brother Fred said, I kind of consulted the board. As Brother Fred said, we, we shown up, our roof would come off the church, and that's just the way it is. If we cancel it, it's not going to happen. We just saved you all by doing that. But uh, nonetheless, I was aggravated, to say the least. I'm telling you, at home, whenever I sat there, I'm thinking, this is so ridiculous. But, you know, God's ways are higher than my ways, so... Amen. Here we are tonight in the house of the Lord. When Jesus finished speaking these words, he's been praying, he's been talking to his disciples. Now red letters have been going for quite some time as he's leading up to his moment of crucifix. So now John 
shifts a little bit. He focuses now more so on the actions and the movements of the Lord because there's a lot of movement that's about ready to take place in these last few hours, uh, taking him and leading him to Calvary. And that's been the case for Jesus Christ, though since his very birth in Bethlehem's manger. He's had these movements uh, that's been carrying him toward Golgotha, toward Calvary. And it's just now in these final moments of John, in the final moments really of any of the gospel writers, that those movements increase and that we can't really with Scripture ever, but more so even now, we cannot overlook anything that is mentioned here. With that being said, for instance, Jesus, here the gospel writer explains to us, actually John tells us in verse number one, that whenever Jesus was finished, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron. I got a slide, I think, for this, if they got it tonight. Number the first little slide up there, the Brook Kedron that ran between the city of Jerusalem. Is anybody up there? Brother Trevor, do you got my first slide up there, man? There you go. I have it marked in red there over on the right, the, the Brook Kedron or the Kedron Valley. You'll notice to the right of that line, I got, if this thing will shine that far. Ooh, see? If we had any cats in here, we'd be in trouble. But... Uh, <laughs> If we got any cat ladies, we might, no, I'm just joking. Uh, <laughs> uh, right there is the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was heading. And, and, and these are not necessarily always perfect, but the upper room being somewhere around here, and he had been in the upper room. He may have been on this trail through here as he was praying or speaking to his disciples. Maybe he did all of that in the upper room. We know not uh, exactly. But he crosses over that red part of the brook Kedron going to the Garden of Gethsemane. And you can just leave that up there, Brother Trevor, because that, that, that Kedron brook or valley runs north to south just, just to the east of the, the city of Jerusalem, and it's between that and the Mount of Olives. And so it's just in between the two. Whenever you look up the words, the brook of Kedron, in the Greek, it is the wadi, the wadi of Kedron. And a wadi is nothing more but a stream that flows during the rainy season, but it's usually dry and dried up and non-existent during the dry season. Well, during this time frame right now, it's somewhere in the springtime there over in the Middle East, uh, whenever the, the scripture was written, the, the time frame that it's writing about around uh, Calvary and Golgotha. So there's possibly some more water lingering still yet in this valley of Kedron, but there's doubtless something that's very distinct and a hint of something else that's in that Kedron Valley, and that is blood. During the first passed over in the Old Testament of Exodus chapter number 12, during that first Passover when they were delivered out of Egypt, there was no tabernacle. There was no temple in existence at that time. And so every family, whenever they slaughtered their lamb for striking the blood on the doorpost and on the lintel, they did that at their household and not the temple because there wasn't a temple to do it at. There wasn't a tabernacle to do it at. They did that first Passover, the killing of the lamb, at their household. But now in New Testament Scripture... There is a temple. There had been a tabernacle. And people from all around the Feast of Passover meant a lot of people coming into the city of Jerusalem and a lot of them with the purpose so that their lambs that they had for Passover would be slain and the blood would be drained appropriately according to the law. 
And so since even that first Passover in Exodus, since that time, there had been laws and rules and regulations that the Jews have from the Mount Sinai of even Moses uh, instituting about sacrifices that the people would make to their God. How these sacrifices are to have the blood properly and completely drained from the animal because the individual was not to eat the blood. They wanted the meat as much... uh, the priest to say that it's completely drained because he said, don't want you eating the blood because the life of the flesh is in the blood. And so for you to eat any of the blood is to, is to partake, if you will, of the life. And so we don't want that. As a matter of fact, they were so stringent upon this that if someone did eat blood of an animal that was left in an animal and wasn't properly drained, they could be cut off from Israel. That is scripture. That's found in Leviticus. They, they risk being cut off from Israel. And so whenever they made their sacrifices, not just Passover, but other sacrifices, peace offerings, things like that, they typically brought their animal to the tabernacle with the assistance then of the priest. That thing would be slain. The blood would be, would be drained. And if it, was a, if it was a sacrifice that they could eat of, not every sacrifice they could eat of, but if it was a sacrifice one that they could eat of like a peace offering, then they could take that meat back to their friends and their family and they could share in that with a clear conscience knowing that the blood was drained appropriately. We're not going to be cut off from Israel. We're not going to be separated from them at all. And so doing that at the temple or at the tabernacle ensured that it was done right. It ensured that they were safe and they would not be cut off from Israel. Well, folks, with that being said, this is Passover time. Nobody wants to eat any blood. They want to make sure they're safe and that this is done appropriately. So many people, when I say many, the population of Jerusalem would increase in times upon times its size during Passover. And so there, I'm talking about hundreds of thousands of lambs are going to be slain at the temple for the purpose of people's Passover meals. Again, during the Passover, it was a, it was a, a, a required a feast for all males to attend and to appear before the Lord. And with Jerusalem getting so much bigger in population because everybody coming in with their lambs, think with me for a moment, how long do you think it would take to slaughter 100,000 lambs? So whenever the Passover meal was, this, this, this process of slaughtering the lambs at the solitary temple by maybe a few priests is going to take a little bit of time. So they got to start early. As a matter of fact, I, I, I did some reading somewhere. Uh, I'll have to find it again, but I did some reading somewhere. Uh, 30 years pass, whenever Christ was crucified, they actually did a little bit of a census of how many lambs were slain about 30 years past Christ, and it was 256,000 lambs. So keep this in mind. Here they are. Got to start early to get all these lambs slaughtered for the Passover meal. And so the blood of every lamb is poured out on the altar or at the base of the altar of the tabernacle. Think now, just for stats, why 256,000 lamb's blood being put on an altar at the base of the altar. At the bottom of the altar in the temple was a drain that led to a channel that descended through and to the brook called 
Kedron. Now listen, morning and evening they had sacrifices at the temple. There was a lamb slain, morning sacrifice and evening sacrifice every day. But now much more on this day leading up to Passover, there is going to be, let's say, 256,000 lambs and their blood poured at the altar, going through a drain, landing in the valley. Now, I did a little bit, for any, anybody geek out, maybe a little bit like I do, I started looking some stuff out. How much blood does an average sheep of one year have? They say an average sheep has 60 milliliters per kilogram of blood in its body. That is, if you're interested, 0.00718959, math, Mariah, liquid gallons per pound. So the average, I looked up, the average one year, and the reason why I said one year, because the Passover lamb was to be of one year, the average one-year-old lamb weighs between 120 and 140 pounds. That means each lamb that was a year old had about a gallon of blood in its body. That equates, Sister Sheila, then, if you take that 256,000 lambs, that equates to about 256,000 gallons of blood that was poured on the altar, went through a channel, hit the Kedron Valley, and ran the elevation down because Jerusalem's on a hill. Ran down through the Kedron Valley. You'll remember even in Solomon's temple, they, they had 10 labors and 10 things of water so that they could rinse and wash uh, sacrifices and pour blood and water over on the, the altar. And so there, there was no doubt maybe possibly water in that valley that Jesus and his disciples were crossing over. But there was even a greater possibility there was blood and water in that valley that Jesus and his disciples are now crossing over. Think with it for a moment, folks. The Lamb of God that Paul said was our Passover is crossing over gallons of insufficient blood of thousands of lambs. The, the writer of Hebrews says, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Jesus is stepping over that. <laughs> Their blood came from a temple mount, but his blood came from Mount Calvary. And you know, anybody just, just loved the smell of blood? It's got a distinct smell, doesn't it? There was probably somewhat of a stench, no doubt, that they all could pick up on as they cross over this valley or this brook of Kedron. But all the while, all the while, reminding Jesus of the blood that he had soon shed for each and every individual. One lamb instead of 256,000. One time and still this yearly happening. So we cannot overlook anything that John is saying in this moment in my opinion. He mentions with detail that they crossed over the brook to the garden because I think he wanted us to understand what normally flows in that brook during the time of Passover. Bloods of hope it will 
maybe it will press the sins on to next year for the one that was the answer to the solution in the valley was about ready to ascend the mountaintop. My God. And the Bible is so marvelous. The more I study the Bible, the more I marvel at the Bible. The more I marvel at the Bible. Because this man, Jesus Christ, who is of the seed of David, King David, you follow his, 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 his ancestry, David, and whenever it's speaking of the, of the king that would come, that would solve the ills and the problems, it's not talking about just a generation after David. It's, it's alluding to Jesus Christ, the one that is both the root, Revelation says, and the offspring of David. What's so interesting to, the, to me about this, Bishop, is this, is that David, King David, one time during his kingship had crossed over the brook, Kedron. Whenever he left Jerusalem, his son Absalom was plotting a plan to overtake his daddy's throne for the sake of safety, for the sake things wouldn't turn sideways. He crossed over this same valley, weeping, sorrowing as he went. He took the same path, if you will, and left Jerusalem because of Absalom. And note, what was it that Absalom was doing? He was betraying his father by attempting to seize his throne. And generations later, we see in the same family tree, the real king, if you will, of kings, Jesus Christ, passing over this Kedron for the purpose to be betrayed by Judas. David went over the Kedron to save himself. Jesus goes over it to save you and I. The lesser king, his father David, did it for himself. Jesus says, I'm not going for myself. I'm going for every man, woman, boy, and girl since the beginning of time till now and that which is to come. I'm going because of them. Similarly, it says he passed over the brook, brook Kedron. You're going to say, Brother McGee, we're not out chapter verse 1 yet. <laughs> I know, I realized this when I studied. But nonetheless, said when they crossed over the brook Kedron, they went into, again, the garden. That's all John says. They went to the garden. The other harmony of the Gospels explain and describe to us what that garden was. It was the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane meaning the olive press, right, where, where the olive grows and the olive trees were and where, where the, the, the oil was pressed out of the olives in that location. But what I want to draw your attention to is this. We need not disregard that they went over into a garden, namely the Garden of Eden or the Garden of Gethsemane as the other Gospels say. But the New Living Translation says it like this. And they entered a grove of olive trees. What I want to point out is ironically, not really ironically, it's, it's divine. This, that the first Adam transgressed, fell, flubbed up in a garden. Garden of Eden. But Jesus Christ, who in your Bibles in the New Testament is called the second Adam. So the first Adam is earthly, but the second one is spiritual. It's the first Adam is, is where the first Adam failed. Mark off the list is where the second Adam succeeds. Where the first Adam's disobedience brought all men into the sin. Then the second Adam's obedience by grace and through faith can bring everybody out of that. And so 
the first Adam failed in the Garden of Eden, but the second Adam remained faithful in the Garden of Gethsemane, meaning that where one disobeyed, the other obeyed. It's just interesting things in Scripture. And the Bible says that Jesus knew about, that Judas rather knew about the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew about it because Jesus often took his disciples there. And it's a garden that normally, that normally denotes an enclosed space. Some believe it was even a private garden that Jesus had access or friendship with the owner even to have access to this garden. But Judas knew about the Garden of Gethsemane because Jesus often took his people, his disciples there. And look, the Bible says whenever they're coming to apprehend the Lord and arrest the Lord, and yes, we are in Resurrection Sunday for the rest of John, basically, okay? <laughs> You thought it was last week. It's really for all the weeks to come. But nonetheless, amen, whenever, whenever they, they got to this place, the Bible says in Judas had these band of men that he was taking and leading. He led the way, the Bible says, to that garden because he knew where to find Jesus. He knew that Jesus oft times went there. He's taken the band of men and the officers and, and, and such. He's taken them there with impure motives, Right? But think for a moment, because I want to see Judas from these different sides. Imagine the impact that Judas could have had if he had directed the people to where he knew Jesus often was. Not for impure motive, but for a positive encounter. He knew where to find him. He could lead them to him. Just, just a Holy Ghost, now society an hour pause. Too many know where to find him because he's unconditionally loved them and have invited them off times to that private secret garden to communicate with them, to be near to them, to be close to them, to be provided for, if you will, at his table, but sometimes our trip up is this, rather than leading others to him for a positive engagement, they've come just to witness our criticisms and disloyalties to him. Someone like Judas, who had been that close to the Lord, Listen, if someone like him that had been that close to the Lord, treasurer of the group, mind you, had no regard for the Lord, then that might just emblazon and inflame every negative assumption that someone may have had about him that wasn't as close to him as Judas was. I don't want to paint the picture of who and what he is by my interaction with him when I'm close and they're far. Mm -hmm. I know where he's at. I could lead them to him. Someone say amen. amen. So they, they assume, no doubt, these people that's coming for the Lord, they're assuming him to be a man of strength or authority on the verge of flexing his political and governmental muscle, right? Because they, remember, they didn't expect, guys, him to be riding to Jerusalem on a donkey. You remember that, right? Right? <laughs> Humbly on a donkey. Not on the horse, not on the steed. 
And so they had this mentality of he's some power, governing political power that's going to come and rule as king. And so perhaps they may have even seen the 12 disciples or the 11 now that Judas is kind of, you know, went left field. But the 11, you know, now, <laughs> right? Perhaps he's seeing them as a coup or something to aid in the overthrow of power, you know, working under the, the hand of Jesus. Because the Bible says that, G, that Judas, I'm going to probably get that wrong more than once, Judas and Jesus, it's real close, all right, that Judas brought a band of men with lanterns and torches, which tells us it was night, and with weapons, right? So they must be, they must be expecting some type of force, some type of force, for that matter, a band of men literally translates into 600 men. There's some variations of it that it could have been as low as 200 and as much as 1,000. But still, you need 200 people to get one guy in his 30s? I mean, I don't know if he, if he hit the donkey barbell gym, Brother Zach. He was a carpenter. He might have had some type of physique. But 200? <laughs> yeah, glory. Put chariot wheels on each end of that barbell, you know. 200? It's kind of a little bit of... I mean, you need that many people to arrest one man because they, they see him, whoever's approaching with power and authority has come to overthrow. He's come as king, which he was king, but he came first of all as savior. And Jesus, though, is not surprised by any of this. Of course, he's God in the flesh. It's like, you're going to catch him by surprise. Yeah. He's not surprised by any of this. And so whenever they come to the garden, what does he do? He doesn't go scurry away, find the biggest bush or rock to hide under. He goes out to meet him. It's like, hello, Jesus. You're right. You got 200 people coming after you. are like, well, let's just go see what they want. Yeah, this can't be bad. They got weapons and torches. It's okay. I feel pretty good about this. They go out there, and what's happening is the very thing that he had already warned his disciples about. He's not escaping. He's not avoiding his hour. He's meeting them. And here's the awesome thing. He's prepared to answer the question that he already knew they would ask. And yet he's more ready for their question than they were for his answer. Whom do you seek, he says. He knew. You, you've heard me say this before. If Jesus ever asks you a question, it's not because he needs the answer. He needs you to know the answer that you're going to say. He needs you to hear it. For, he don't need to know. He needs you to know. Who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth, they say. And Jesus says, I, right here in our good old red letter, King James Bergen Bible, glory to God, says, I am he. Now look in your Bibles. Your he, not every Bible does this, but most of them do. Your he's probably in italics. I'm talking to you, Sister Melinda. You didn't bring your Bible. <laughs> I'm This is Bible study. That's all it is. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. Your he in your Bible is probably in italics. You go to the front of your Bible. It's going to tell you there in the front and whenever it starts explaining different things and about all the abbreviations, it's going to tell you that when you find a word in italics in your Bible that that was added by the translators. 
Meaning that those that stood in the crowd that day and those band of men did not hear, I am he. They heard Jesus say, I am. Now for the Jews that are in that crowd, that carries a different weight than just I am he. Because we've already heard in John this this far, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. He comes and they say, Jesus Nazareth, and he says, I am. And so whenever that crowd of people heard, I am, and again, there's a mixed group of people. There's some Roman soldiers, the band of men. There's some chief officers and different ones from the Jews. There's Jewish leaders as well coming to arrest him. But something must have struck a chord in the heart of those Jews when they heard those words, I am. And I don't know. I don't have no absolute proof. Jesus, Jesus was a multilingual, okay? He could speak Aramaic, Hebrew, no doubt Greek, because whenever we get into this time of Hellenization, Greek was like the common language among all people. He could speak all these languages. I don't know if he spoke it in Aramaic. I don't know if he spoke it in Hebrew. I don't know if he spoke it in Greek. Nonetheless, if it was in Greek, if it was in Aramaic, whatever, it would translate to this in Hebrew. Will you put my next slide up there? Because what's coming back to the minds of all these Jews is the law and everything that they have learned from years ago from their Egyptian bondage. The story whenever the Bible talks about how there's Moses on the backside of the desert and he's having this interaction with a burning bush and God's telling him, I want you to go back to Egypt. I want you to be my deliverer. He says, God, if I go back, who, what, who should I say sent me? What, what is the name? And I didn't really, I, I didn't plan on going here, so you don't have these scriptures, but I'm going to read them. You can turn there if you want. Exodus chapter number 3 and verse number 13. I'm going to start there. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am, that, that's your little first phrase up there, Eya Asha Eya in Hebrew. I am that I am. Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. Look at verse 15. And God said moreover unto Moses, Thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, The Lord, the Lord God. That word Lord, and you'll note in your Bibles, and you'll see this oftentimes in your Bibles, Lord is spelled in capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And when it's used like that in your Bible, it is the memorial name of God that God gave to Moses that is, is written in the Hebrew language. They don't, they don't, some say there's not even a pronunciation for it. Some say even if you did know the, we call it Yahweh, but some say even if you did know the pronunciation of it, like the Jews, they weren't supposed to pronounce it anyway. They would say Yah and way, they break it up because that name was so holy, that name was so sacred it wasn't just, they weren't even worthy to have it up on their lips in speech. Whenever they were, when they were copying manuscripts and they came across it, if they, if they made some type of mistake in, in, in any of the punctuation or any in, in writing, and if it wasn't just perfect, they would just start all over. Yeah. We're not talking about copy machines. We're talking about good, hey, vav, hey. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? And so, Whenever we come to the second, that is, that is Yahweh. That is the, 
capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in your Bible, the covenant memorial name of God that he speaks of, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, have sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. Now, and, and I, I left some of the little markings here under here, but these lines are not Hebrew markings. That's just me underlining, okay? <laughs> Notice this right here. In the Aya Asher Aya, in both Aya's, where the I am comes. This little last part there, that Yud and that, that, that hey, that spells Yah. Or if you'll go to Psalm 68 for me, that is a shortened version of the memorial name of God. When you see in Psalm, Psalm 68 4, sing unto God, sing praises to his name, extol him that rideth upon the heavens by his name, Jah. And rejoice, jaw in the Hebrew in Psalms right there is that yud. Go back to my slide. Is that yud and that hey? It's the memorial name of God. Now, here's the thing. They translate that over English. Hebrew doesn't have a, a sound J. They missed it. They missed the ball. It's, it should be yah. But nonetheless, so if that's God's name, and that is a shortened form of this, and we see it here, all the way back whenever God first spoke to Moses, tell them this, I am that I am sent you. I am. Which basically, it means that he's self-existent. He's self-sufficient. What that means for us is he wasn't created. He's not the result of a cause. He always was. Again, I don't know in the New Testament if he spoke Greek, if he spoke Aramaic, or if he spoke Hebrew. But if he took any of those languages and translated them to Hebrew, you know what it would be? The yud and the hey, the, the very last, the yah. Amen. It would be the I am, even if he wanted to, the aya with yah in there. So those boys, this is not just a carpenter's son. Hmm? This is not another man just walking in shoe leather. This is everything that he has said he has been all alone. He is the word made flesh. He is God manifest in the flesh. He didn't say I am he. He said I am. He's not saying that I am just Jesus Nazareth, which he was. He's saying I am the God. I am the creator. I'm the all-sufficient one. I'm the self-existent one. I am that I am. It can be trans... That, that word haya, the, those, those both in and beginning of the very top sentence, they come from a verb, haya. It means that I, I am that I am or I will be what I will be. I was what I was. It is so fluid. And that's God. He was what he was. He is what he is. He will be what he will be. And whenever he spoke, I am, that's everything that's flooded into the minds of some Jew that's standing there and any, any other Gentile Roman that might have an inkling knowledge about anything. And look what happens. The Bible says they went backward and fell to the ground. Now, I don't have some big discourse why that happened, but there's power. In the name. Jesus, awesome thing about him, he's headed toward Calvary, but he's making a last-ditch effort to share his identity once again with those that would hear it. He's telling them that he was God. Amen. They went backwards and fell to the ground. All right, going on. Where are we at? Oh, we're not doing... Man, I feel pretty good about myself. 
And so in this garden scenario, the story of Judas is woven in this passage. And the amazing thing about the story of Judas, sometimes we think, how in the world could he do this, right? He ate where Christ ate. He's seen some of the miracles. He was there of all, right? I mean, as an outsider, we're like, what's the deal with this guy, Judas, you know? I mean, he ate with the Lord, slept where the Lord slept, drank from the same fountain, all this. What's his deal? But it's interwoven in the story here because here's the reality, if we'll own it. Judas's story could be any of our stories and has been some of ours. Often I pause whenever I read Acts chapter number 1 and verse 17 where the disciples are getting together to cast their lots about who should replace Judas's row and Judas's office among the 12 because the sobering moment is this. Again, when we consider that Judas could have been Paul McGee, Judas could have been Mike Trout, the betrayer could and has been at times each and every one of us. When I hear whenever they're going to cast the lots concerning this Judas, Acts one seventeen speaks that Peter said, for he, speaking of Judas, he was numbered with us and uh, had obtained part of this ministry. That's sobering to me every time I read it. He was one of the 12. He had part in this ministry. But that did not insulate him or prevent him from betraying. It don't matter what, what ministry label is laid to us. It doesn't insulate us. And it doesn't prevent us from betraying the Lord just as Judas had. Peter said that Judas, he's saying basically he was one of, he's one of us, man. Yeah. We're the twelve. We got leather jackets on the back. Twelve disciples. You know? We're the twelve. He was destined for the same purpose as them. But he failed in his pursuit. Could be any one of us. In other words, who are we? Who are any of us? We all could have been a Judas and succumbed to the same thing. And, and, and we do this from time to time. And what we must do then is this. We must evaluate our lives, right? The Bible admonishes at different times to evaluate our lives. And I say even a little bit more plainly tonight, we need to evaluate where we are standing. Someone say, where am I standing? Verse 5 tells us after Jesus said, I am he, Here's the little footnote of John. And Judas also which betrayed him stood with them. The them references not Peter, James, and John. The them are the band of soldiers and the chief priests and those that came to apprehend the Lord. Judas is revealed as the betrayer, no surprise. He is standing with them. Judas, which also betrayed him, stood with the band of officers, with the Pharisees. He stood with them. He should have, listen to me, he should have already been in the garden with the 11 disciples. He should have already been the disciple in, in the garden with the other 11 disciples, but instead he stood with those accusing and desiring to apprehend the Lord. The scripture that comes to my mind, and I have it up there, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, admonishes us and says, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. G Judas stood with them. Listen, standing isn't good enough. It's where. It's where. 
It's where you are. People have stood for a lot of things. But what are you standing for? What are you standing with? Standing isn't good enough. What, what is the company? Whom are you standing with? And the sin is very apparent then. Judas comes near to the Lord, puts that kiss on his cheek, which when he did that, he betrayed the very meaning of what a kiss was. And I'm not talking by our standards, I'm talking about biblical standards. In the Old Testament, in Genesis, when Esau and Jacob, brothers that have been estranged for some time, while Jacob was with Laban and working seven years, right, for Leah, <laughs> oops, and then Rachel, and then stayed and took care of cattle and then comes back home really nervous about meeting his brother because last time they seen each other, he hated him, was going to kill him, and they come to one another, right? Right, right? J Jacob is, is every, he's, he's every, what, six, seven paces, and he's kneeling and doing all this stuff. And finally, when they come to get each other, the Bible says, one kissed the other. There was no killing going on. There was no slaughter. What was conveyed in the kiss was this. It was a sign of reconciliation. It was a sign of forgiveness. And we see that sign concerning the kiss over and over again throughout the Scripture. You see, whenever Joseph... After being mishandled by his brothers, right? The pit, the prison, then a place of prominence. And when they're wanting food for the famine that's in their land, they come. He keeps himself hid concerning his true identity to them and finally had all he could have when they came and he finally revealed himself to his brothers, right? And what goes on? He put everybody out of the room and he goes around and the Bible says he kissed them all. What was he conveying? You're forgiven. You're forgiven. I'll be reconciled back to you. You're for it was forgiveness. It was reconciliation. What's the, one of the first things that happens whenever the prodigal son in New Testament Scripture in Luke 15 comes back home and daddy runs out to him? What does he do? The Bible says the father kissed the son. What's he saying? You're forgiven. I reconciled this relationship. You won't be a servant. You'll be a son. It's forgiveness. It's reconciliation. That's the reason why throughout the epistles you read in the New Testament, it seems real odd and gross to us, but it says greet one another with the Holy... No, I'm just joking. It says, though, greet one another. Ah, I keep you awake on it. My lips kind of been chapped, so I just didn't go there now. Greeted you with a holy kiss. Now we're thinking, this is strange. You know, putting you know, slobber meringue on each other's lips there in the church. No. What it was alluding to was the fact of what that represented. It said, when you come together, greet each other for a holy kiss. What he's saying, offer forgiveness. Offer reconciliation. As often as you come together. It's the concept. And so when Judas comes to the Lord, I could kiss you, young lady, but I won't embarrass you. <sighs> You'd never want to be kissed by another man after the no, I'm joking. <laughs> no. She's going to marry someone someday. She's going to tell you, listen here, buddy. My daddy was the first man to ever love me. So Judas, whenever he kissed Jesus, it totally betrayed the meaning. There wasn't, he wasn't trying to reconcile anything in the moment. Yeah. 
And he for sure didn't have anything he needed to forgive the Lord of. It was betrayal through and through. So in sense, the sin, one of the sins, or if you could say of Judas, is that he pretended to reconcile and he pretended to forgive when in reality he was distancing himself and denouncing the Lord. And it brought to my attention Matthew 15, 5, it's not, or 15, 8. It's not up there. And we've used it a lot, and I've used it a lot in my preaching with speech, being this. Well, they draw near to me with their mouth. Huh? That's what the church says. They draw, they draw nigh to him with their mouth, and they honor him with their lips. But their heart. I always applied that to speech. But I wonder if it could be applied to this scenario of Judas. He drew near to the Lord with his mouth. He honored him with his lips, but his heart was far from the Lord. Amen. Glory, amen. We're doing good. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. So Jesus doesn't lose anybody. He really leaves an out he protects his disciples. He gives them an out. He says, if it is, it is me that you're looking for, if it's me that you're trying to take, he said, then let these go their way. Referring to his disciples, let them go. And again, he speaks of his, his word of fulfillment. I lost none. Those that you have given me, I have lost none. He lost none concerning followership and none concerning their actual lives except for Judas, the one which it was prophesied in Scripture that it would take place. Now, I don't know, bless someone, you know, Today, it's like, bless your heart, you know. Someone, they do something stupid, crazy, and everything. It's not like really sincere. It's like, bless their heart. Well, Peter just, I mean, had the bless your heart badge, you know what I mean? And Peter does something, well, bless his heart. You know, he's going to deny the Lord here later, so bless his heart. You know, he's going to open his mouth and insert foot, well, bless his heart. I don't know what was in Peter's spirit. I don't know if he felt like, well, the Lord protected us, now I'm going to protect him. Swing. Right? And he gets out his sword, he's like, watcha! And a right ear of his servant's laying on the ground. The right ear of the high priest's servant, Malchus, is laying on the ground. And so Peter, note now, where they get, went and everything. Jesus is like, don't worry about taking a bunch of swords. Well, how about two swords? Yeah. Wouldn't you know, Peter would have one of the two. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, it's like Barney Fife that has the only gun with a bullet in it. Here's Peter with his one sword. You know, he got two swords. Peter has one. Crying out loud. He cuts off a guy's ear doing his protection detail or whatever it was. And so he drew his sword. And what's Jesus say? Sheath your sword. Because, Peter, you're attempting to resolve a spiritual battle with a natural weapon. Sheath your sword. Now, Jesus knew that Peter's efforts were to no fail, right? What's going to be done is going to be done. And he even told Peter, he said, Peter, sheath that thing. Will, will I not drink the cup that is in the will of God for me to drink? I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I mean, besides, you know, Corinthians tells us even later, weapons are a warfare, not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. But, and it's not recorded here in the Gospel of John, but it's recorded in the other Gospels, so this is why I bring it up. 
And I'll, I'll finish with this and just give me a long way to finish. Not recording John, but it's recording the other accounts that Jesus, after this happening, he picks up the ear. Right? He picks up the ear and he reattaches it to the man's head. Now, I don't know about you, now I'm just thinking here. If I was a soldier in the band of men coming to get this guy Jesus and his buddy Pete just cut off one of my buddy's ears and the guy I'm supposed to be taking knelt down, picked up the ear and was like, I mean, I'm going to have a little bit of pause about what I'm going to do with that weapon in my hand. I mean, <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? I mean, I was born at night, but no, actually it was in the morning, but not yesterday morning. I mean, it's going to give me a little bit of pause. But nonetheless, the Bible speaks that they went on and proceeded anyhow. And think about this for a moment. One of Jesus' last miracles then, before the cross, was, was restoring a man's severed ear to his head. Which for me underscores an importance of a phrase that comes up often in Scripture, especially in the book of Revelation to the seven churches. He that hath an ear, let him hear. Which I think is important for all mankind. Because, everybody doing okay? These are all the tipping points, right? I got like five sermons in here. It was customary throughout the Old Testament. It was common mutilation among warriors and soldiers that if one caught another on the opposite side, one that was their opponent, that they would cut off their, what they called the great toe. We call it the big toe. I don't know why we don't call it the great toe anymore. You know, I stubbed my great toe. <laughs> oh, the, it's called the great toe. We say big toe. The, their big toes were cut off and their thumbs were cut off that was proper mutilation for a warrior that was captured and they did this because they're hoping that this man by doing so they will keep him from ever being an effective warrior again he won't be able to go out on the battlefield he can't hold you go out there and hold a sword without a thumb right go out there and march without your balance being called your big toes so they're hoping that they're going to make this guy no longer an effective warrior. He can't draw a bow. He can't handle a sword. He might never, never be able to pursue or escape from an adversary again. And so they were, they were taking away, if you will, the fight. The fight from whoever this was. The, the warrior's skills were lost because of the marring of the thumbs and the toes. The adversary wanted to take their fight from them. But thumbs and toes... Head and shoulders, knees and toes, and thumbs and toes. Thumbs and toes are very significant to the Hebrews. Leviticus 14. Leviticus 14 is telling the story of what happened to a leper, which leprosy was typical or symbolical to sin in the Old Testament. This is what happened. Leviticus 14, 14. And the priest shall take some of the blood of the trespass offering. This is a leper that has been made clean. All right? This is the formality that went through. And the priest shall take some of the blood of the trespass offering and the priest shall put it up on the tip of the right ear of him that is to be cleansed, upon the thumb of his right hand, 
and upon the great toe, big toe, of his right foot. Verse 17, and the rest of the oil that is in his hand shall the priest put upon the tip of the right ear of him that is to be cleansed and upon the thumb of his right hand and upon the great toe of his right foot upon the blood of the trespass offering. So the rabbis, the old Jewish rabbis taught that a Hebrew who had leprosy, again, which was a type of sin, and was cleansed, then went through a consecration after their cleansing. They consecrated the ear, they consecrated the thumb, and they consecrated the toe. And they would take some of that blood of the sacrifice and they would touch that big toe and that thumb of the right hand and the lobe of the right ear. And this is what they meant when they did it. They would touch that, that ear or that thumb rather and they would, they would basically consecrate that, that hand just by doing the thumb. They would consecrate the hands of that individual to do what they should do for the kingdom of God. When they went to the toe, they would anoint that and they would touch it because they wanted their paths to be directed in the paths that they should and ought to go for the Lord. And whenever they touched that ear, they would anoint and put the blood on it so that that ear would always hear the voice of the Lord that's constantly speaking. So when Peter goes, wahoo, and cuts off that guy's ear, Peter did the unthinkable. Because he's not like the old ones taking a thumb and he's not taking a toe. He's taken and affected that soldier's hearing. And when we get in Revelation, the seven churches, they made their mistakes, their blunders. They were condemned over a lot of things. If I can say it like this, some of them lost some toes and thumbs. But they always had an ear. And he said, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I know some of you have been misguided. Some of you in the Revelation are falling into the practices of Balaam and Cain. Some of you, you have misguided feet. Some of your actions are faulty. Your church is sitting at the seat of Satan. Some of you, he said that he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying unto the church. I'm saying this today, that the enemy can affect your walk and he can come along as Satan did Judas. Amen. He can affect your walk. Think of Judas. Jesus held Judas' feet in his hands when he washed his feet. And though his feet had been in Christ's hands, he still was misguided with his walk. He may affect your walk. He may even influence your actions, your, the the activity of your hands going to disable you from fighting, just make you an ineffective soldier. All this is kind of everyday warrior activity, using my hands and using my feet. But Peter went too far. If you'll stand with me, Peter went too far because he was affecting the voice of the Lord in another man's life by taking an ear. And that's not to be tampered with. By no one. You hearing me? That's not to be tampered with by no one. And I learned that from the very beginning. Adam and Eve. Paradise. Eden. Trees to eat of. The tree not to eat of. Tree of life. They transgress. They sin. They take. They lost some thumbs. Improper action. 
misdirected paths. But even after their sin, the scripture says, and we heard the voice of the Lord walking. I just blundered. I just sinned. My thumbs have been broken. My toes have been expended. But I have an ear. I'm telling you tonight, oh, I feel the Holy Ghost. You know what the salvation is for our world? They can be maimed. They can be maimed. They can be, they can be taken advantage of by the adversary. But if they have an ear. If they have an ear. They can hear the voice of the Lord. And conviction can come. And salvation can come. And a moving and wooing of the Spirit can come. Just through a voice. Through a hear. Jesus says, Peter, I can't allow you. You've done the unthinkable. i got to put that back on his head. Calvary is just a few hours from now. This man's going to need the ability to hear. Take his hand if you want to or his foot. But you can't take his ear. Let him hear. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Because every Malchus needs the opportunity to hear the voice of God in the Garden of Gethsemane where the oil's being pressed out of our lives. Every individual needs to be afforded that opportunity. Hallelujah. Someone say hallelujah. Hallelujah. Woo, glory. God, you are so good. Man, if we can just raise our hands and bow our heads. I feel the Holy Ghost here. And I don't want to go beyond the Spirit of the Lord. I know, yeah, just let us go home. But I think we just need to be mindful of Him right now all across this building. God, these tipping points, Lord, in your word. Oh, Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.